Good morning and uh, welcome to Two Marines in Kiev. I'm not sitting here and we're working remotely, but uh, Andy Milburn sitting in the headquarters of the Mozart Group, former Marshal Commander, and Jaysak uh, Saksen, the Deputy Commander, experienced uh, freedom fighter fighting ISIS and now in Ukraine. And Andy Bay, the CEO of the Ukraine Freedom Fund, which he founded in 2014, you know, the first signs of uh, Russian aggression, and uh, has lived here in uh, Ukraine for uh, some 31 years, but more importantly, is also a retired Marine Colonel too. Great pleasure to see you, Andy, even though it's remotely. Yeah. I hope your household goods are uh, are moving safely. I've got an army of movers coming in about 30 minutes, but uh, after May 9th, I felt it was safe to come back and move my family so that I can return to Kiev in three weeks and uh, until the end of the war. I've told the family I'm not coming home until victory, so. You know, the, the May, May the 9th, which turned out to be a little bit like the, uh, you know, the millennial, right? Everyone predicted bad things were going to happen. And uh, so far, so far, thank goodness, uh, nothing has. Yeah. Although, um, you know, as we were talking about before the show, the Russians are definitely making progress, uh, both in the, the east and, and the southeast, uh, you know, steady progress. Um, the worst has not happened. Uh, the Ukrainian army uh, has not uh, been enveloped by Russian forces, but, but nevertheless, uh, the, you know, the fact that they are gaining ground is concerning. And um, it's, you know, at a time too, I mean, we're almost 90 days into the war, right? It's a time when we are 90 days into the war. It's a time when uh, for much in the, most in the West, the new cycle has moved on. They've kind of got Ukraine fatigue and, um, you know, which is just a, a natural kind of public focus of effort. I would argue, I don't know how you feel about this, Andy. I would argue that this is a critical point in the war, though. I mean, this is, you know, a time when uh, the attrition of the last 90 days is, you know, it's not something that, that you can simply dismiss. And Ukrainians are having to hurriedly train guys. And there's no shortage of volunteers, but they're having to hurriedly train them and send them to the front. And you're familiar with the dynamic here that a lot of territorial defense guys who would otherwise be just located around Kiev are now also being sent to the east. So definitely, you know, I'm not being chicken little here, but we're not out of the woods yet here in Ukraine. I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting if, if someone, and I hope someone in European command has this, but I, I don't, but it's a dynamic in terms of how much manpower Ukraine has. And I think they've got a lot of manpower, a lot of volunteers. Like you said, they're going to the front with one or two days training. You know, often that's that's more than they get. Which is so they're they're taking a lot of casualties unnecessarily, and I suspect after the war there are going to be some investigations as to who screwed that one up. But the Russians are in the same boat because you know you read about the retired general they brought out of uh, you know to be a pilot, and then the T sixty they're bringing T sixty two back from the Korean War whenever they had T sixty twos. So it doesn't yeah. seem like Russians are are doing so well. It's really getting down to it. Yeah, I, I hope you're right on that. You know, of course, an, another aspect of this, though, that does cause concern is the fact that the Russians have repositioned forces, have withdrawn some forces from Syria. And, you know, I mean, this is probably just anecdotal, but nevertheless, they, we've heard it repeatedly that the, the guys who are now manning uh, Russian units on the front line are better in quality and training than they were at the beginning of the war. I know that's a very low bar. I'm not saying that they are, you know, extremely proficient, but they're at least a little more experienced. Well, there's a lot of discussion that the units, especially 
around Kiev were uh, both low quality, but also some of them were specifically designated and recruited for psychopaths. Uh, you know, the guys in Ukraine and Bucha. Yeah, uh, no kidding. Yeah, no, there were, there were, I talked to several Ukrainians who had that. Uh, one from European who's, uh, he's a retired Navy captain whose uh, house had been put, completely ransacked, the NATO things destroyed, and uh, booby-trapped. So he had, they had to send the EOD into his house before they, he went back in there. But he was saying how they had found that the prevalence for uh, social dysfunction amongst the people in those units was very high, as if they'd been recruited out of prison or something like yeah. that. Clearly, clearly, I don't think the Russian people are so supportive of war crimes like that that anyone would do it. So it, it might take a special unit to do something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd heard a version of that story, too, that Putin's much vaunted reforms in the aftermath of Georgia were really a paper tiger because so much of the, that money allocated to reforming the army it was dissipated through corruption and that the army always had kind of a, has had a very low image in, uh, you know, among the Russian population. And so those who could afford to or could get some kind of deferment did so. And so in the end, it was kind of the dregs that ended up in the army. I mean, it's... Well, it's certainly in the enlisted ranks, like in the Soviet times, but to be an enlisted man was something you really, it's almost like being a slave. You were a slave for yeah. two years and you got the hell beat out of you for the first six months and then you turn around and beat the hell out of the next cadre that came in. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, but then the stories of Russian soldiers who'd never seen paved roads before, or who didn't know what a flat screen TV. They clearly recruiting a lot of these guys from areas of Russia that are not the most civilized. Also, so that when they get killed, no one's really talking about it. You, you don't want yeah. to take kids off the Red Square whose parents are connected and have them die. You want to take uh, people who's, who no one cares about or is being talked about, particularly in a close society. Yeah, that's a very interesting comment. Actually, we've got one of our uh, new interpreters, Yuri who's um, Ukrainian-American, he spent four years in the Soviet army in Moscow, and this was during Afghanistan. And I said, hey, you, you know, you're lucky that you weren't sent to Afghanistan. He's like, hey, you know, the units around Moscow were recruited from Moscovites, and they didn't go places like that. You know, they, they had too much, you know, they were the, uh, I suppose, the, the children, perhaps not uh, necessarily of the affluent, but of the, as you point out, those who had the greatest influence immediately yeah. around the capital. So... Well, it's just, and I, I, I meant to send this to you, but one of the media companies in Ukraine that I, that I, well, I own, but uh, um, they did a report on a uh, hundred slides of what the Russian impression is of the war. And Putin's favorability has gone up. Uh, people's, uh, you know, across the board, the, the, the war is not having negative impact in Russian culture that they like to tout about the West. And the economic sanctions may be starting to bite, but not in any way that is having negative impact, at least the way people are responding yeah. to, uh, you know, they might think differently, but they're not responding that way. But interestingly, also, it seems there are more Russian refugees from the war than there are Ukrainian. Over 4 million Russians have left Russia since the beginning of the year. No and, kidding. And it's all, you know, the upper middle class people, people who yeah. know, know what's going on and realize this is not a good thing. But the massive exodus of Russians is quite phenomenal. Voting with their feet. Yeah, exactly. You know, but as a, but as you point out, as a percentage of the total population, that's, I mean, that is still, that's a lot, but nevertheless, you know, we seem to grasp onto small glimmers of hope that the Russians are against the war, you know, like that recent concert in Moscow where they showed the crowd chanting, fuck the war or whatever. But those seem to be kind of the anomaly, right? Well, so he, I mean, during the Iraq war, you had that. Uh, you know, Cindy Sheehan and all those people who they got a lot of news time, but they really didn't have much impact. Yeah. You know, 
And it just plays to the Western soundbite as opposed to the reality of what's happening in, in Russia. And it's really not being brought home to them. I mean, you know, as the, the news coverage here shows Russian bodies being recovered by Ukrainians and, and stacked in refrigerated cars outside Kiev, you know, so there's definitely a deliberate policy not to bring all of these, you know, all the uh, KIA, the, those killed in action back to home where, you know, it might provide a spectacle that the media would latch on to. If you look at the casualties, the casualties from Russia are high relative to Afghanistan relative to the last 50 years of war, but they've been conditioning the Russians with, I mean, if you look at Russian media, the, the, the war films, Russian war films the last 20 years are actually production quality extremely good. They, they get real T-34s and, and Tiger tanks. And it, I mean, if you speak Russian, they're really pretty interesting movies and they yeah. always have a little tinge of patriotism enough to justify the, the outlandish production <laughs> but it's been this massive long-term propaganda campaign. And so people are used to seeing casualties there, you know, and the, you know. the casualties we're seeing now are nothing compared to 1941 when the Germans surrounded a Russian army and, you know, and then killed 3 million people or captured them and then let them starve to death. Yeah. But as a percentage of the army that came into the Ukraine, it's, yeah, you're right, staggering. I mean, even at the most conservative estimates of, yeah. uh, you know, the, like 16, 17,000 killed in the most conservative estimates, it's extraordinary. But, you know, so switching gears back to the Ukrainian military and, and bear in mind all, you know, I'm just seeing one tiny snapshot here, but our uh, familiarity with Ukraine soft is perhaps kind of an indicator of how things are, are going. I mean, our, our, uh, our perception, our experiences with Ukraine soft, the, the demand to train brand new units and not just Ukraine soft because someone heard we had Marines here. They asked us to take a look today at the Marine uh, replacements for Mariupol, right? The Marine Brigade. They're forming five or six, what they're calling Marine Assault Companies. And we've got three of our guys out there now doing an assessment of these guys who by all accounts are, are brand new. Um, we continue to train the Azov down near Zaporizhia, and those guys are two battalions that have been raised to replace their casualties in Mariupol. And again, those guys are very green indeed. Very, obviously very brave, great cohesion, you know, they're, they're very upbeat, but brand new, brand new. I mean, we had a, one of them shot himself in the foot the other day on the range, um, first day on the range. And, and of course, our guys were all like, oh my God. <laughs> Um, we had a medic, Dathan, who was treating him and this guy's buddies came up and said, don't, don't, don't worry. He's done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it was the other foot. I don't know. Um, but it is a little concerning. And then today, you know, we had, uh, just a, almost seemed like succession of people coming in or calling saying, Hey, can you do this from everything from, you know, the DIA reconnaissance battalion through to the, you know, those battalions that have the UW mission. We'd love to get more green braids in to help with that. So it's a capacity issue for us. You know, we, we can handle a battalion with six guys if we do company by company, which is extraordinary. And that's because we have these Swiss army, uh, Swiss army knives of people who can do multiple things, but that really is kind of stretching it. And, uh, so at any given time, you know, I said at the, at a stretch, we can do two to three battalions, but. It really comes down to prioritization. It comes down to resources and all of our guys. So a lot of it is, I assume for you, a lot of it is the money. You know, you could scale up with, with more funds. Yeah. Yeah. The low donors, uh, you know, Ukraine Freedom Fund, we're buying good equipment. But what I think you're doing, you, you know, teaching people how to survive artillery fire yeah. and then how to treat each other when they get wounded is the thing that's going to save the most lives. 
and more safe lives on the front line is going to mean a, a stronger defense and counteroffensive. So that's yeah. really the best I, allocation of resources. Yeah, I, you're right, Andy. And it amazes me that there do not seem to be resources allocated to that. So here we are still relying on donor funds. To your point, though, you know, people ask me, what would you do if you had, say, you know, donations amounting to $200,000 a month or whatever? What we do is increase our capacity. I mean, we would be training, you know, a brigade at a time or more, you know, we could reach out and, and train other units beyond Ukraine soft. So I think the donations have an exponential effect. We don't, as you know, spend money on equipment. It all, it all goes to just kind of supporting the trainers and things. I mean, it, it, it basically yeah. stipe to deliver on. I, I think yeah, my guess is, uh, you know, back of the envelope, you guys could train a battalion for about $20,000, you know, full in to, you know, to a, you know, at least a basic standard. Whereas like a Marine recruit battalion, what do they, what's the cost of center of Marines to recruit? Like $60,000 each. So uh, per recruit. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's definitely, uh, you're, you're talking that $6 million versus $20,000. Yeah. And, and also Andy, you know, I mean, and, and this, you know, this isn't propaganda. I mean, look at the quality of our trainers, you know, I mean, today doing the assessment of this Marine assault company, the three guys, two of them are instructors for Estonian uh, SWAT, you know, in, in Tallinn. Uh, and I mean, top notch guys, they, they instruct sniping, they instruct explosives and, um, you know, what we call TCCC. And then the third guy was in dev group otherwise known as SEAL Team 6 to the public. Uh, very, you know, very humble guy, former Marine too, with multiple skills. And so you're getting three guys. I mean, you just can't, they don't come much better than that. And these guys are, you know, going today to do an assessment for, for peanuts, right? Well, that kind of gets to what, what we were talking about before the show and how uh, Ukraine's kind of slipped off the map in terms of, uh, you know, the, the press coverage and and a late, you know, the New York Times had an editorial about, well, maybe Ukraine should settle. And Henry Kissinger displaying his senility, uh, you know, mentioning the same thing. And I sit there and go, how, as an American, can you tell another country, yeah. well, what, you know, which, don't put your freedom in front of, you know, don't let your freedom inconvenience me. Yeah, yeah. And it shows just an incomprehensible misconception of Putin, right? Oh, the fact that, yeah. Hey, yeah, you know, let's just let's just hold the status quo now, guys, and you know, just settle down as as though that's it's just going to stay that way. Yeah, I mean, you got to take care of him now when he's weak. I mean, he's not that he's going to get that much stronger. He's left to his devices, but you know, clearly he's on the back foot. Yeah. Um, you know, tactically, and I think uh, being able to swat swat a good defeat against him would be, uh, and then create uh, you know, make Russia like North Korea. Um, yeah. Leave them to their own devices and let them swallow in their, uh, you know. I'm pessimistic about international resolve to do that, though. I think we saw uh, the great momentum in the immediate aftermath of the invasion. But you know how international outrage dies away pretty quickly and economics, basic economics starts to. People go back to being people. I mean, at the beginning of the war in yeah. Ukraine, it was everyone stopped drinking. I mean, martial law, no one drank. Everyone volunteered. Everyone was ready for everything. And it's like, yeah. I'm just like, wait, I, you know. Kiev is like a, Kiev is, is like an, a normal city now. It's unbelievable yeah. just in the last you know, everything has, has opened up. And yet, and yet, you know, I mean, just yesterday down in Zaporizhia, two missiles landed, um, you know, within a, a kilometer or two of the, the hotel where our team is. So, uh, you, you know, there's a, definitely a disparity between the capital here. I, and, the, you know, I mean, there's, there's goodness in that, but definitely a disparity here and what is happening in, in the East. 
Yeah, it, it's a um, it, Kharkov is apparently better. My cousin came out and he's, you know, my cousin Chris, he's out in Kharkov and he wrote me yesterday saying he's uh, quitting his job in Palo Alto. He's moving to East Ukraine to help out. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, obviously he doesn't feel any under any threat in Kharkiv and he, he really enjoys, uh, he's really impressed uh, with yeah. the people in the lifestyle. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, you know, I can certainly understand that. There's the nearer you get to the front, the, uh, I suppose the more the, that resilience is very clearly visible. And when the front was here in Kiev, it was the same way, right? Because you remember there was only a, I don't know what the percentage of the population remained behind, but it, it definitely wasn't most of the population, right? Oh, I, uh, I would have said under 20%. Yeah. I mean, it was such a different city, but there was kind of a sense of, Hey, we'll, we'll stick this out and wh whatever comes, we, we're not moving. But it's a danger in the last eight years, you know, after Maidan, but most of the war was in the East. Uh, a lot of Ukrainians slipped into sort of the way it was in our, you know, in the States and Iraq is, well, there's a certain class who fight the war and then everyone else goes about their business. And it was yeah, that's not right. as bad in Ukraine because a lot of people, a lot of people had closer ties to the fighting in the U.S. where I had college classmates who I was the only guy they never knew that knew what the military was, you know, yeah. kind of scary, but, uh, but there's a danger that Ukraine, you know, Kiev and Lviv and the Western cities might slip back into, well, this is the new norm as opposed yeah. to having to kick the Russians out of Ukraine, which I think they need to do this summer. Yeah. Yeah. Which we are, we're working, uh, collectively to, uh, to make happen. Hey, the good, the, you know, there, there's some good news stories, um, Andy, uh, you know, the IFAX, the individual first aid kits do, do seem to be making it to the front line in much greater quantity. The guys that we're dealing with have them. And I do want to talk about very quickly uh, the training package. You know, we've got this five-day standard training package, but we also now, because we have this team of ultra-competent Slovakian medics who have worked in, in Syria and Iraq and, and now come out here and, and support us, and they ran a superb two-day course for all the medics in the battalion, you know, down in Zaporizhia. And so, and then when we ran our five-day course, those medics, when we got to the, the second day, which is TCCC, those medics were kind of the assistant instructors. So it helped bolster their, their image. It was really quite something. So, you know, I think the, I would stack this training package. I would gladly give it to a, you know, a, a U.S. Marine battalion. And I think they, they would greatly benefit from it. You know, last night, uh, they, they issued squad leaders, uh, or rather the platoon commanders an order and, uh, you know, send them out on a, uh, on a night ambush. They, I mean, the, these guys have, they come a long way in five days. Marksmanship, you know, we were actually, because we we're always taught, Hey, if you have no means of, of scoring your round, it's a wasted round, right? Blasting away at paper targets. And, uh, you know, it, it just having one guy after the other come and, and shoot without anyone checking where they're shooting is a total waste of time. Apparently we're told that is kind of the norm here. So for our two days of marksmanship training, they only get a limited number of rounds, 120 rounds, but everyone is either a hit or a miss and it gets recorded. You know, and the guys who aren't, don't do so well have to remediate. So again, I mean, this is nothing revolutionary. I'm just saying that it's a really, it's a quality course and the guys are, are doing a superb job. What it is, it is, I'd be really interested in it after the war to figure out the personnel structure and how so many people are not trained and, you know, why there, why there seems to be a sense of urgency beyond uh, planning in terms of getting Let's pick Igor out off the street and three days later, he's on the front lines in his effort. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's not anecdotal. I mean, that isn't an exaggeration. We've, we've come across that time and time again. 
Would be the same with the ammunition and that, you know, why all the in laws and javelins, they're getting to the front, but not in the numbers that they're coming over the Polish. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And uh, often without, you know, I mean, if this battalion, these battalions or anything to go by, they've got a shortage of batteries, you know, I mean, all those problems. Very few of them, very few of them now. I know the end law and the javelin get, have got a huge amount of publicity, but actually it's really hard to find someone who's fired them in combat. Because, you know, I mean, they, they've just had, though so the in-law actually, the in-law has been particularly effective because it's very simple and it doesn't require a lot of care and feeding. Yeah. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't diminish that. Well, so the, I was asked by some of the uh, Intel guys to go take a look at these drones that the company's manufacturing out of Chernitsi. Great oh, yeah. scientists doing great stuff. Um, we're going to support them. You know, they're actually for withdrawing evacuations and finding out where not to go really humanitarian capabilities that these drones have. But as I, I went to their, they showed me in the back of a sprinter van they had going on the way between Chernitsi and, and Kharkiv. And they opened the back to show me, you know, I saw the drone there and they put it together for me, but also in the that back of the van were four Stinger missiles. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, wow. Oh, this is where the Stingers are. And, yeah. Um, yeah. The elusive Stingers. Yeah. Yeah. Do we, uh, we get asked a lot for javelin trainers, so we're putting, you know, we're putting out the word for that. And I do, before we draw to a close here, want to remind everyone that the Russians have littered this country with uh, cluster munitions. And so we are, we're hungry for, uh, to get EOD techs out here, not, not to defuse stuff, but to train Ukrainian bomb techs. Uh, the Ukrainians lack, severely lack capacity, both in terms of, of training, personnel, and equipment. And so that's something that we are pushing hard. Ukraine's really going to be ground zero for bomb clearing in the next 10 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've started in uh, Irpin and, um, and Bucha already. And they have had some near casualties from the, you know, where they, they uh, blow up the demolition blows. Yeah, because they're, they're stacking, you know, about 2,000 pounds of <laughs> explosives. There's so much of it. Well, when you and I went up there and all the soldiers, you know, the soldiers were... Jumping kicking down on the kicking on the ground. I know. I've got a video with that noise in the background. It still makes me cringe. <laughs> We're almost out of time here, Andy. I, I want to plug what you're doing and uh, tell our listeners to look at the mozartgroup.com for a place to the freedom fund. I'm a, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of the freedom fund, but I think right now anything we can do to get soldiers trained, you know, so they're going to the front and doing it credibly and surviving and able to take the fight to the enemy rather than just become casualties, it's got to have a critical priority. So, yeah, please, uh, please go to our website, guys, and uh, and click either join or uh, donate, even if it's, uh, you know, even if it's a small amount to, to use that and, uh, that overuse, the true cliche, every bit does count. Yeah. Okay. Well, good to, good to talk to you, Andy. And uh, I will, uh, uh, I'll probably talk to you very soon. <laughs> okay. Yes, indeed. All right, Andy. Okay. Hey, thanks so much. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.